the Black Shorts Hour. Welcome everybody to the Scare Slam. Uh, do people here like to be scared? Yes. I won't ask about your slamming preferences. <laughs> yes. Um, welcome. Uh, we are Blackshaw Theatre, and we are thrilled to be back for our fourth year. It's okay, you hesitated, that's okay. But you got there, you got to the correct answer. This is all a test. Um, coming up this evening, we've got a fantastic selection of stories being told to you all. Are there any fans of storytelling in the audience? Yeah. This is ideal, guys. You've ticked several boxes. Stories and scary. This is great. You're going to love what we've got coming up. Uh, I brought with me a tiny clipboard today. I didn't pre-plan with the uh, way I printed things, so <laughs> it's, um, ah. <laughs> yes, this was a gift for my birthday recently. Um, does someone say happy birthday? <laughs> I, I mean, I say recently. <laughs> it was May. <laughs> Shut up, sister. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, she's gained a lot of sister points. I have three sisters. How many have turned up? One. One is correct. I'm, I also have a mother and a father. Are they here? No, they're not. No, they're not. No. <laughs> to be fair, you don't want my mum here. What? No, not in a weird way. Because she's terrified of everything. So um, she would be uh, more vocal than would be helpful. Um, I'm just going to do a really cool tech thing that I like to do during shows. Um, Andy, are we recording? Yes. Excellent. Good. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> I don't want this comedy gold buried forever. <laughs> I want to dig that up later, re-listen to it to get to sleep. Okay, good. It's very validating. You're all laughing, so it's going to get me through some tough times, guys. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, yeah, so you're going to get me. Um, I'm providing... I don't know, but I'm in between the other bits. Um, I'm aiming for light relief. Uh, I will at points make you be like, <laughs> what's she saying? Um, but that's just how I go with the talking. And um, sometimes the talking is strange, but um, I'll do it enough so that within about 10, 15 minutes of this evening, you'll be like, oh, this is our normal now. <laughs> We're okay with it. We don't remember the time before that. This is probably fine. Actually, we, we like this now. Yes, this is good. This is better than the times before. Yes. So that's, that's where we're, he we're heading to. So you can all look forward to heavy breathing down the microphone because that's how I ended that, so good. Um, all right, well, I feel like I've warmed you all up sufficiently. You're all making noises, good laughing, little bits of honking. That's a type of laugh. Um, so I look forward to hearing more of those and also maybe some gasps and maybe some stifled screams. <laughs> that was like a mouse having its neck snapped. That was awful. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. You'll have more of that sort of thing, probably. Um, all right. Well, we're going to uh, start with a piece that matches the current state of my top lip. This is called Night Sweats. <laughs> it's fine, I'm owning it, guys. I spoke to Andy about it earlier. He was like, don't worry about it. They'll just think it's hot under the lights. 
I've never noticed before when you've been really sweaty. You're not as sweaty as, like... Who did you say? Lee Evans. <laughs> Setting the sweat bar real low there, Andy, thanks. You've not sweated through a three-piece suit. You don't need to change all your clothes at the interval. There's no interval, just so you know. I'm just going to sweat through this dress. And you're all going to like it by the end. Okay, good. Um, so sorry, Sasha, you're performing this first piece and I have not set you up well. Um, but luckily, Sasha's provided me with a little blurb to read you, so this will be much more sensible. <clears throat> this is Night Sweats, written and performed by Sasha Wilson. Sasha has been described as a trifle morbid. She's the author of Bury the Hatchet, a true crime podcast meets live bluegrass musical about the infamous American axe murderess Lizzie Borden. That is so up my street. She didn't write that, I said that. Um, she likes history and things that go bump in the night. This evening is no exception. This evening, ladies and gentlemen, she presents Night Sweats, a tale of terror and loneliness in the Wild West. There is a peculiar sensation when the blood clot inside of you dislodges itself from the wall of your womb and makes its slow journey down the chutes and tubes of those secret organs that men just poke at and never quite understand. It is a precious moment, one that I have always delighted in. There is pain, but it is experienced more like melancholy than as a true physical ailment. It throbs like an empty room. <laughs> I hadn't been able to imagine her giggling in days. I'd also not slept, which isn't good. It was by the window thinking these thoughts when I first noticed him at the edge of the clearing. The night was bone white and the silence deafening. A flicker of fear licked its tongue up the back of my neck, and I realized I had been holding my breath when the image of him lurched through the field. He wasn't running. It was the deliberate plod of a man that had been crossing the prairie at the same pace for longer than I had been wearing black for Jedediah and Grace. He wasn't slow, neither. The closer he came, the clearer he was. Tidy enough? Still wearing his hat, but not a stitch of luggage on him. Not even a saddlebag slung over his shoulder. The prairie sun bakes, and I have seen more than one filly foam and have to be shot, but he carried nothing. He was nearly at my porch when I noticed his right hand was wrapped with a bandana, flat, where the last two fingers ought to have been. His bootfall on the bottom step ricocheted up the beams, and I could feel it under my feet as I looked out of the window upstairs. I froze. But I always bolt the front door before bed, so there was nothing to fear. Jed hadn't been much of a craftsman, and when he first built the house, it would swing ajar if the wind was keen. The sound of it smacking had woken us up from Christian rest more than a brace of times before I insisted that he put a lock in. I waited 
for the knock. But there was nothing. It was a June night, and the white cotton clung to the sweat on the square of my back as I leaned forward. Why didn't he knock? Why did he wait? Knock! A queer kind of rage seized me. I was certain that he knew I was awake and was obstinately waiting at the door to be let in. Catherine. His voice was just as I remembered it. If I had buried him yesterday, I wouldn't have had less trouble recognizing him. I flew down the stairs and flung open the door. It crashed against the frame like staccato thunder during the summer rains. But there was nothing on that porch. The sear of moonlight sliced clear across the whitewash and everything was empty. I could feel fire start in the corners of my eyes and my breath came high in my chest. Catherine, honey, bolt that door. I could have, I could have sworn I felt the heat of his breath by my ear. Did my hair stir? <laughs> the breeze. It must have been. But only then did I remark what a still night it was. And that was when I saw the man again at the tree line. And this time he was running. And I didn't need telling twice. I heard the thrashing of grass against thighs pounding and I fumbled with the bolt. How did he make it all the way back to the tree line? Damnation and hellfire. Bolt that door, woman. Grind, screech, chunk. There was a faint ringing on the sides of my face as I caught my breath. Bang, bang, bang! I screamed and jumped back. Whatever it was, for it, it certainly had to be, as none but the wings of Satan could have flown his bones that fast across the field and up to my door, wanted in. Catherine, Catherine, please, I need to get inside. Please, honey, fast. You ain't my husband, and I wouldn't open a can of beans for you. Mama, please, Daddy needs to get inside, and I swear... The hem of my nightie rustled by my ankle like a little sweaty hand were grasping it. Bang, bang, bang! I watched the bolt rattle and the hinges groan like my grandpappy when he would lean back from a table full of grits and gravy. I, I had to see what was pounding on that door. As I rounded the top of the stairs, I grabbed the shotgun leaning against the railing and dove for the chest at the foot of my bed, linen and sewing cascading in a spray of snowy fabric when I felt the cold of the shells against my fingertips. Two cylinders in, shunk, shunk. I pumped the prep and leveled the butt against my shoulder. I knew how to shoot. Daddy had made sure of that. You can't run hungry when there's rabbits for target practice. Bang, bang, bang on the door. My cheek felt the cold of the window glass as I looked down. But that porch was empty. I scanned up and down. Nothing. No one. Not even a furrow in the field grass where he must have made his way through. God damn it, where are you? Before I knew it, I was out in that field with the whir of the cicadas and the hum of all them living creatures in and amongst the grass. Show yourself to me, I said. Mama? It was Grace's voice from behind me now, clean and whistle-sweet. But when I whipped round, she stood some 50 feet down the path that led back towards the forest. Everything was frozen, except the heat 
pouring in salt clumps down my stinging cheeks like baking grass spitting from the pan. I wiped them away, furious. And when I opened my eyes, she was gone and the path was empty. But the branches at the edge of the forest grew thick and began to heave, and I turned and ran. I ran like nothing, muscles burning, whiskey bright, breath sandpaper in my throat. I couldn't turn back now. I had to run, nearly at the door, nearly safe. I leapt up the porch steps, and my back foot caught, and I pitched forward the shotgun, fired! <sighs> and my eyes flew open. I was in my chair. I was in my chair where I had been sitting all along. Lord have mercy, I laughed. Sweat clinging to my nightgown, and I tried to chuckle, rubbing that nightmare away. The chuckle eased into deep breaths, and I lay my head back, relief cascading down over me like a hymn. And that was when I noticed a man step out from the tree line by the edge of the clearing. Thank you. Uh, we'll be bringing our show On Your Head Be It, a cautionary tale, uh, a black comedy about a serial killer couple on their weekend away in Wales. Next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the 27th of the month at 9.30, so please come. It'll be much funnier than that. Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> Thank you. I think, uh, I think you ain't my husband and I wouldn't open a can of beans for you is going to be my new comeback. <laughs> Ladies, if you're getting catcalled, use that. <laughs> Our next piece is Lay Me Down, written by Morgan Knoll, presented by Somna Theatre Company and performed by Robbie Heath. New kids on the block, Somna Theatre Company, have produced Lay Me Down as a thematic appetizer for their debut show, Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? That is an excellent title. A one-man show focused on parental fears, alienation, and child paranoia. If you like what you hear tonight, then be sure to attend their London Horror Festival premiere, October the 15th at 9.30, right here at the Old Red Lion Theatre. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's how it goes, or so I'm told it. When we were kids, we'd say it loud, fast, and twice repeat it. We'd scream the graces down the church corridors and sing it proud down churchyard steps and neighborhood streets. When you're young, it's a protective verse, a magic charm, your best defensive. Yes, loud and fast, and twice repeat it. A simple prayer with comfort and credence, but it took just one to misrepeat it. It started small, as these things always do. It was the autumn I'd enrolled my youngest Claire at my old Sunday school. One day she came out of the classroom with a discipline letter attached to her bag, Miss Martin's looping pen scratched in the folded paper. Disruption during bedtime prayer. Green card moved yellow. Claire's small face glinted with dew and I kissed her quick, wiping away tears. I wondered how a creature so little could be any trouble at all and I asked her what happened and her tiny mouth answered, I don't want him to take me. 
Was this all it was? Uh, a misguided reading. I tried to make her understand, just to make this fucking prayer land, but she wasn't convinced. She wailed and she kicked and she cried, don't let the Lord take me. So the letters continued. Claire's been pinching herself, Miss Martin informs me. At that time, she's been keeping herself awake, deliberately. Those angry white letters, they doubled in numbers, all strapped to her bag, shamefully mounting. Then the PTA meeting started stacking and I'm told she started screaming. I've got to keep the others awake. Claire would cry, and I'd hush her about a million times as I tried to forget the now-surmounting, disgusted eyes that followed us into church. They're not sleeping. They're all terrified. The pastor started chiding me, as if I knew what to do. Claire was then convinced that if anyone shut their eyes, it would be a damning goodbye, and I didn't know how to control it, and by then, it wasn't just contained to nap time, no, I I tucked her in, I shut off the light, I boiled milk, I held her tight, and every time I checked on her in the night, her little eyes flashed back at me, terrified. Of what? Angel light? It's your fault! The calls pour in, angry parents all roaring. Thomas hasn't slept in three days. Alan, four. More kids are staring, wide-eyed and shaking, all night in their beds, just waiting, afraid of the Lord who might steal them away if they dare to shut their eyes. But it gets worse after a week when they start to see him. From sleep deprivation, their tiny eyes can conceive it. Visions of tall figures in corners and closets. He's there, they cry in wet sheets and dry eyes. He's here for me. I told you, please hide. He's in the garden shed, in the boiler room. He's here, under my bed. They all begin to see the Lord, distorted and uncanny. And you try explaining to an eight-year-old that her sleep-craving brain is creating these figures and fears that none of it's real, but it gets harder and harder because to them the picture's so clear. Please, mummy, they're shouting, don't let him get near. The letterbox starts jamming. Facebook posts, petitions for my banning. I'm excluded from Sundays, birthday parties, community meetings. No one is sleeping. And my child is the source of this cancer that's breeding. But what more could I do? By now, they were all interconnected. Their kids were just as guilty as mine in maintaining this infection. But no, I'm the one they target. They slap with rejection. Meanwhile, Claire was awake, staring, and I got tired of being accused of not caring. And I just wanted to shake her dark curls in despairing and say, there's nothing coming to get you. There's nothing coming to get you, you stupid bitch. What do you want me to do? But I didn't. I didn't want to make things worse by shouting, I'm a good parent and I'm not prone to snapping. So I ran to the bathroom. I'd like to say I was just tired of fighting. I got her a pill. Just one or two, just to make her sleep. Just to make her see that closing her eyes wasn't going to make her bleed. She struggled in my arms and I slid them into her mouth. I told her not to move, to hold still and wait. That a good night's sleep would set us straight. I I laid her down and watched her eyelids fall heavy. The relief of it all, to watch her breath steady. See, I smiled, see, nothing is going to happen to you in your sleep. We just pray the Lord our soul to keep as a way to remember how to behave when we're awake. It's a comfort to keep a lullaby to repeat and nothing will happen to you in your sleep. But by by 2pm I realised her wriggling arms had confused my count and, and I doubled the dose. Twice the right amount. So now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take.
Up next, we have got Warm and Chewy, written by Ollie George Clark and performed by Dean Hogan. This is the story of Gertie, the overgrown, globby parasite of a small town, becoming the warm and chewy centre of the community. Written by BAFTA Rowcliffe writer... Ollie George Clark. Words are getting so hard, guys. Uh, his writing credits include Coconuts at the Lyric Hammersmith Evolution Festival, Those We Exile at the Almeida, and in the beginning at the Bloomsbury Festival. So I'm excited about Warm and Chewy. <laughs> Is everybody sitting comfortably? You can answer, that's fine. Good. That's good. That's how these stories start, in comfort. We like comfort. It's comfortable. It settles you. It settled Gertie once, long ago. Comfort. Warm and chewy comfort. He's at the centre of this story, Gertie. You wouldn't say the hero, but certainly the warm and chewy centre. See, that was his trouble. He loved everything with warm and chewy centres. He loved sweets and chocolate, sugar and cake and fizzy drinks and bubbles, sausage meat and breadcrumbs and bacon thumbs, oil and fat and grease and spitting and not much broccoli at all, really. That's Gertie. Which wasn't his name, of course, Gertie. No one's called Gertie, except the people who really are called Gertie. His real name was Bertie, but his mouth was always so full with warm and chewy centres, a mangled, muffled, muted motion meant that people heard Gertie. He lived in a very small town, which isn't there anymore, next to a big city, which is yet to be built, with two people he wrongly assumed were his mother and father. He didn't have a job or go to school. He didn't have siblings or cousins and didn't have friends or enemies. He lay very still every day eating on his bed. And the result was that the people of this past town were indifferent towards Gertie until the Tuesday. Until the Tuesday when the rain stopped. Until the Tuesday when the rain stopped and the crops didn't grow and the food didn't come and the bellies rumbled. On that Tuesday, a town's meeting was called in what we now know to be a church of sorts, but at this time was more akin to a pit. Everyone was in attendance, builders and butchers, clerks and conjurers, farmers and fishermen, jewellers and judges, poets and priests, sailors and seamen, washermen and washerwomen, and naturally, (laughs) zealots. Everyone except Gertie. Gertie lay comfortably in his bed, warm and chewy, eating still, for despite the immediate halt in food which plagued this past town, there was enough food lodged and caked and caught across his incisors and molars and cuspids to feed a farm for a fortnight, so he remained quite oblivious, quite contented. The conversations in the pit began pitifully. There was no consensus, no common ground, nor community to which all could concur. Some suggested waiting, holding tight, sure the rain would return when most needed. After all, the rain had always returned just when most needed, other than the exact moment they found themselves currently in. A few suggested a sacrifice to the rain god, but who exactly to sacrifice brought about just as much problems as deciding which exact rain god to sacrifice it to. Plus, there was the issue of lack of volunteers. The few who suggested the idea suggested it shouldn't be them, precisely because they hadn't suggested it. But the exact opposite was said of the many who hadn't suggested it. No one wanted to die. No one that was there. But not everyone was there. Gertie had not moved an inch while the fate of his home was decided. Not an inch while the future of his livelihood was debated. But then why change now? Gertie had been the same during the water shortage, but three years back, and during the medicine epidemic and the homeless panic, the benefit doubts and the allowance queries. In short, Gertie had given nothing back to his small past town, only suckled from its warm and chewy centre. And it was this honest and convincing diatribe that the woman he believed to be his mother had just delivered to the hushed heads in the pit. What does one do with parasites, she asked, those that take and don't give back? 
We do the same, said another voice from the back. We do the same and we take. The voice at first husky and nervous, grew in confidence as the crowd nodded. We go and we take back our right. With this, they climbed from there what we already know to be some sort of church and headed to Gertie with rope and blade in tow. It was a knock at Gertie's door which first confused him because no one ever knocked. His parents would just wander in and place food on his stomach which rolled towards his mouth. No one knocked. Until that Tuesday when the rain stopped, then they knocked. He turned his head as much as was possible with the rolls of every kind around his neck and watched as the builders and the butchers, the clerks and the chefs, the farmers and the fishermen, the jewellers and the judges, the poets and the priests, the sailors and the seamen, the washermen and the washerwomen and finally the zealots all came tumbling in. And before he could swallow his mouth full of fat, four of each grabbed each limb. It was left to the poets to hold his mouth shut and the judges to wield the blade. Now, the judges placed the point down into his stomach, letting the juices bubble up from the freshly made hole and slowly with palm to base, all pressed down, letting it gently glide in deeper and deeper. The screams, despite the poets' efforts and many fingers, did creep out from Gertie's mouth. They resorted to forcing layers of his own neck fat into his gaping gob, which worked far better. The judge's blade, in the meantime, had got to Gertie's stomach, and with two great almighty paws and a fair amount of ugly hacking and ripping, they were able to let the blade slide open his belly through the fat and guts and get to his warm and chewy centre, and therein lay their treasure. All the food he had eaten, all the sweets and chocolate, the sugar and cake, fizzy drinks and bubbles, sausages and meat and breadcrumbs and bacon thumbs, oil and fat and grease and spitting and not much broccoli at all, all sat there stewing in a great bubbly broth. The judges then turned around and said as one, this is fair, this is just, and with that each stepped forward, climbing up the great belly and cupped a handful of the warm and chewy broth and made their way home, quite comfortable and content. The mixture, such as it was, kept each woman and man quite full until the rains returned, which of course they did six months later. But what went quite unnoticed in the room that day, amazing though it seems, was that Gertie, for better or for worse, died in a lot of pain during the struggle. No one ever visited him again, and he's still there now, rotting, belly open, broth swirling, warm and chewy. Good night. In terms of pace, clarity and diction, the Gilmore Girls have got nothing on you. <laughs> Full of admiration. Uh, Next we have, this is our penultimate piece, ladies and gentlemen. This is Banshee Bungle, written by Vivian C. Lermond and performed by Victoria Howell. Banshee Bungle is a monologue in the style of the old storytelling tradition. Vivian is an award-winning playwright whose one acts and monologues have entertained audiences in the US, Mexico and the UK. And now, the Horror Festival. didn't be no one about it. A banshee is a terrifying creature, as old as the hills of Hibernia. Its high-pitched wail is the call of death, and if you hear it, it'll chill you to the bone and haste you to be saying your prayers, for if you hear the banshee's mourning, death will be claiming a soul by the new day's dawning. This chilling tale was told to me by Liam McCarthy, who heard it from Danny Duggan himself, a man who'd seen him with his own eyes and with a strange quirk of fortune had lived to tell the tale of it. 
it was Samhain, the Celtic Eve of all the hallows, the night when the boundary between the living world and the other world can be crossed over easily. It was a dark night, made brazen by the harvest moon, and a ghostly fog had rolled up from the sea and was shrouding across the fields. On this same night, it was just about after the time of the pub closing, and Danny Dugan had sunk quite a few of the drops of the old creature with the lads, as was his wont to do. So he was very grateful for the full light of the moon as he staggered across those foggy fields on the way back to his cottage. And that is when it happened. As he staggered across those fields, he saw two fey creatures having a sing-song, harmonising to the tune of Amazing Grace. Well, Danny Dugan did what any God-fearing man would do. He crossed himself and hid behind a hedge. <laughs> now, through the mist, he couldn't see them too well, but he could hear their blather. And they were talking about they had a job to do this very eve, and they were late for the appointment. And one of them scolding the other one for getting them caught up in this notion of creating a choir so that they could give the sweet singing sirens of the Outer Hebrides a run for the money. Now, there's nothing like an encounter with the spirit world. It's a sober man up fast. So as soon as he saw those fey creatures fly full away, Danny Dugan got his flummoxed self up and headed home as fast as a spindly little legs could carry him. And as he slammed through the door, Wife, he says, as I was coming through the fields, I heard angels singing to me. Ch said she. That liquor has pickled your brain finally, you daft old fool. The day that angels be singing to you. That was, says himself, they were singing Amazing Grace. <laughs> says she. You'd better be blessing the saints and counting your lucky stars that you didn't encounter a banshee ready to take your soul away. And be blessing the amazing grace of the Lord that he let you to be living one more day on this Samhain Eve. Now shut the door behind you before you go to bed. And so ends the tale of Danny Dugan. Although not quite. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> he was saved that Samhain Eve by a simple banshee bungle. Two creatures too distracted to be stealing a soul. But there was more mind that came out of that night than a terrifying memory. As it was told to me. Danny Dugan was never quite the same again. He lived out the rest of his days, caught between sanity and a dream, lost in a world between ours and the other. And some do say that on Samhain Eve, he can still be seen crossing that foggy field, a dismal shadow in the ancient lamplight of the moon. Before we move on to the final piece of the evening, I'm going to slip in a cheeky B-side. <laughs> it's an old cassette reference there, guys. Um, does anyone recognise this book? Yes! <laughs> Fan, okay. <laughs> um, 
Strulpeter is a children's book, which, from looking at the front cover, you would be forgiven for thinking it's not. Um, it is written by uh, Dr. Heinrich Hoffmann, who was like, yeah, kids' books, you know, there's some out there, but um, I can do better. <laughs> so uh, he, he wrote some stories um, for his children, and um, we were read these as, as, as children. My sister's going to have nightmares tonight. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read you uh, one of my favourites. <clears throat> and I'll try and sort of angle some pictures at you. This is the story of Little Sucker Thumb. <laughs> One day, Mama said, Conrad, dear, I must go out now and leave you here, but mind now, Conrad, what I say. Don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys that suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs off, clean off. And then, you know, they never grow again. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. <laughs> the door flew open. In he ran. The great, long, red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see. <laughs> the tailors come and caught out little sucker thumb. Snip, snap, snip. The scissors go and Conrad cries out, Oh! <laughs> snip, snap, snip. They go so fast that both his thumbs were off at last. Mama comes home, there Conrad stands, and looks quite sad, and shows his hands. <laughs> ah, said Mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little sucker thumb. <laughs> Highly recommended, very kid-friendly, lots of good morals, some slight racism also, so just look out for that one, maybe don't read that one. Um, I might read another one next year, so if you need an incentive to come back to, uh, to the Scare Slam, there you go. Spoiler, it's going to be Harry and the Matches, guys. <laughs> the only reason I didn't do that for tonight is I was not satisfied with my preparation of cat voice. Um, if you read it, you'll understand. They have a key part. Uh, good. No, no, as I said, not satisfied with my preparation for the cat voice. Um, <laughs> is there real demand for me to read it right now? <laughs> okay, 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 okay. KKKKK. Okay, 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 okay. No, that's the racist one. Um, <laughs> Oh, here we go. Okay. <clears throat> the dreadful story about Harriet and the matches. It almost makes me cry to tell what foolish, foolish Harriet befell. Mama and... Fucking Mama. 
Mama and nurse went out one day and left her all alone to play. Now on a table close at hand, a box of matches chanced to stand. And kind Mama and nurse had told her that if she touched them, they should scold her. But Harriet said, Oh, what a pity, for when they burn, it is so pretty. They crackle so, and spit, and flame. Mama too, often does the same. The pussycats heard this, and they began to hiss, and stretch their claws, and raise their paws. Meow, they said. <laughs> meow, meow. You'll burn to death if you do so. But Harriet would not take advice. She littered match. It was so nice. <laughs> it crackled so, it burned so clear. Exactly like the picture here. <laughs> she jumped for joy and ran about and was too pleased to put it out. The pussycat saw this and said, Oh, naughty, naughty, miss. <laughs> And stretch their claws and raise their paws. Tis very, very wrong, you know. They're very old cats. <laughs> meow, 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 meow. You will be burned if you do so. And see, oh, what a dreadful thing. The fire has caught her apron string. Her apron burns her arms, her hair. She burns all over, everywhere. <laughs> Then how the pussy cats did mew. What else, poor pussies, could they do? <laughs> they screamed for help. T'was all in vain. So then they said, we'll scream again. Make, <laughs> make haste, make haste, meow, meow. She'll burn to death, we told her so. So she was burned. <laughs> With all her clothes, and arms, and hands, and eyes, and nose, till she had nothing more to lose except her little scarlet shoes, and nothing else but these was found among her ashes on the ground. And when the good cats sat beside the smoking ashes, how they cried, Meow, mew, meow, mew. What will Mama and Nursie do? Their tears ran down their cheeks so fast, they made a little pond at last. <laughs> Legit kid story, guys. <laughs> And, and a heads up, if you burn yourself to death, your cats will give zero fucks. None. Our final piece of the evening. I'm very excited about this one. Uh, Reese has performed at the Scarceland before. This is Mrs. Miller, written and performed by Reese Connolly. Uh, blurb as follows. My primary school was a Victorian build that looked a lot like the Amateurville house, sure. And backed out onto a derelict graveyard, sure. 
I feel a lot of that probably made its way into this piece of scholastic terror. I'm a writer and performer originally from the North East, now based in East London. I've written and directed Hubert is Very Dead, which is playing at the London Horror Festival on the 23rd and 24th of October, and my original play, Chutney, about a couple who decide to spice up their relationship by murdering their neighbour's pets, is running at the Bunker Theatre throughout November. Hello. Okay. At school, I was the only kid afraid of Mrs. Miller, and I think that's because, in all honesty, I was the only kid that could see her. But first I'll set the scene. It's the year 2000. The world had not ended as predicted, which most people now agree was probably not for the best. I'm at school, primary, seven years old. My future stretches ahead of me like a limber, enthusiastic Labrador. School life smells of bleach, must, and traumatic formative experiences. Sounds like squeaky gym floors. Looks like colouring books, coat hooks, small chairs. The only font we are exposed to is Comic Sans. I was never very popular, only had one good friend and I wasn't sure about him. He put tiny plastic farmyard animals places they should never have been grazing. I am an outcast, a sitting duck in the pecking order and the biggest of the vultures, a brick shithouse of a child called Kevin, who despite his name was adored by his parents, lives to inflict misery on me above all others. Each art class, I carefully sculpt a spaceship from Play-Doh. And every time Kevin strides across the room, he is unnaturally well-developed for a seven-year-old, as though his mother has been injecting black market steroids into his turkey dinosaurs of an evening. And with a mean grin and dark glint in his eye, he slams his enormous fist down onto my rocket, turning it to smush. Kablamo! he says. A pancake. Even Han Solo can't pilot a pancake. Tell on him? Are you crazy? He'd give me a wedgie so severe I'd be cleft clean in two. He's promised as such, though not so poetic. I'll make you shit your brains out through your belly button if you ever snitch, he growls, and then storms off towards the Wendy house with deadly intent and the unfortunate souls within, Godzilla advancing on Tokyo. <laughs> that fateful Friday 13th! However, everything changed. It starts the same. Art class and Kevin's fist turning my Play-Doh TARDIS to just blue mess, but then a sudden chill. The air has become as cold, heavy, thick as a bowl of porridge left and forgotten about on the open windsill of a Siberian granny's cottage. Time slows like its batteries have suddenly drained, wound to her, to her the classroom's just stopped, everyone's stuck, apart from me. And that's when I saw her first through the glass, across the yard, by the black gates, one crooked, bony finger pointing, pointing at me. I'll never forget the pale skin clinging to sharpened features, wide eyes the colour of spoiled milk, ashen hair scraped back into a tight, unforgiving bun like a sumo wrestler with a low threshold for fun. I slam my eyes shut, and when I open them again, she's there towering before me, teetering, slowly swaying, and I think I hear her creaking, and her dress is right there, and I see just how old, how moth-eaten, how charred by long, extinguished flames it really is. Don't you know it's rude to stare? The voice is brittle nails down a broken blackboard. Her breath is rotten spiders in a musty jar of piss. Look at me, boy, or I'll pluck out those baby blues and make them look at me. I did. I did look up into that long, falling face, mottled as an unwashed football sock left out in the rain. What are you? I squeak. Her lips are cracked and barely there, her teeth broken beer bottles clanking around a putrid landfill gone to seed. She says, my name is Mrs. Miller. 
former headmistress, burned here in a fire, 1886, and I've been here ever since. Are you going to kill me? Eat me? Skin me alive and wear my butt cheeks as a bonnet? Don't be so crass. Since I died, or rather fried, I've stuck around so that I can help when I sense a child in pain. That's what teachers are meant to do. So let me help you. And the bony finger extends again. I follow the line to the Wendy house to Kevin the bully. Halfway frozen through the act of smashing Dan Ridley's face into a Fisher-Price microwave. I can help teach that dirty birdie boy a lesson. I can help you teach him a lesson. Just sign in here. She's pulled an ancient textbook from the folds of herself, caked in cobwebs, yellow pages, crisp and splattered with hundreds of names written in ink and biro and crayon. And I look to Kevin. I feel the weight of the wasted Play-Doh still in my hand. I take a red Crayola, and on the last page, I... A week passes, and the art class arrives again. Crepe paper, fuzzy felt Play-Doh, which I'm steadily modelling into the tall red shape of Thunderbird 3. And right on cue, Kevin arrives at my side, making shitty spaceships again, I see. You've really taken your time with this one, haven't you? I nod. Sucks that I have to pulverise it, but you know how this goes. I did. We both did. Or so we thought. But things can change. And while much was as before, that clenched ham fist rising up, then sailing down the soft but fatal explosion of the Play-Doh, what Kevin was not expecting was the shock of pain. The sight of the pencil I'd built, concealed into the shaft of my spaceship, freshly pointing, tip pointing upwards, now impaled through his hand, wood splintering into spongy flesh, lead shrapnel tearing muscle and leaking its taint into bright red blood, which spurted, spurted almost joyously, like ketchup from a squeezed canteen sachet, all over the both of us and the others at the table. Red, red, red. Splash to splash to splash. It's warm on my face, and I am smiling but everyone else is screaming and teacher is suddenly shaking me. Why have you done this? She cries. And suddenly I'm thinking, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> Mrs. Miller told me to. She showed me to. And I point to the corner where she'd been all along, where she'd been egging me on. But now she has gone. Of course, the therapists say she was never really there. They tell me this apparition was just the outward manifestation of a deeper pathological condition, but I never listen. I know what I saw, and we did teach him a lesson. I hear Kevin is a changed boy now. In fact, he never leaves his room, so I guess we have that much in common, apart from he's at home, and this is a psychiatric youth prison. Regardless, <laughs> regardless, Mrs. Miller got her pound of flesh, as she always does each passing school year, where she picks a project, her new teacher's pet usually a misfit or a quiet one like myself, and convinces them to do the most terrible things and sate her sadistic, scholastic appetite. So this is a warning. Tell your kids to be afraid of Mrs. Miller and to look away and cover their ears if she ever allows them to see her. Well, thank you so much for being such a bloody brilliant audience, everybody. Thank you. And um, a huge thank you, a huge thank you and round of applause for all of our performers this evening.
So if you like the cut of our jib and you want to see more of our jiblets or whatever, um, then uh, I should let you know that we have a podcast. Um, it has all sorts of things on, including me all the time. So if, um, if you have been successfully conditioned throughout this evening, as I promised at the beginning, and you feel like this is the new normal and it's okay and actually maybe it's good, then uh, you can find us on all the podcast places. We are the Blackshaw Arts Hour and our website and all those Twittery, Facebooky, whatever's are on your programmes. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be hovering. Um, and um, uh, also we have a podcast that we are like sister podcasts with called Merely Role Players. If you like role-playing games, um, not like in a sexy way, although <laughs> it's kind of sexy. Um, <laughs> things like Dungeons and Dragons, because um, we're cool. Uh, then uh, it's it's a very simplified version of that, um, all done by theatrical people. Um, so we do weird shit. We go to the Wild West. We do um, Famous Five. We do um, uh, what uh, someone referred to as Crash Bang Wallet Pot a Heist, uh, which is just a heist. Um, we did Spies. And actually, the Spies series, series does have sex in. So if you want to hear me have really awkward spoken word sex uh, with the Games Master... Um, who's playing the role of a French scientist, <laughs> René Lacroix, <laughs> uh, who has nice hair, apparently, uh, and has been described by a 70-year-old woman as a soft boy. Um, <laughs> if that shit's up your alley, boy, howdy, are you in for some fun. Um, so that one's called Merely Role Players. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Blackshaw Arts Hour. Follow us on Twitter at Blackshaw Update. Watch us on the Instagrams at Blackshaw Theatre. Like us on the Facebook at Blackshaw Online. And find all the things at blackshawonline.com.